I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 4 as we continue our study in the book of Romans. Um, Just out of curiosity, how many of you have seen the movie The Jesus Revolution? A bunch of you have, that's great. I would encourage you to see it. Um, I'm in the last scene. Uh, I was there, they show Billy Graham uh, preaching in Dallas, Texas, and I was there with a hundred kids from my youth group, and uh, it set off a series of events that led to me being here. So uh, God was at work. I took a non-Christian friend who was deaf. We actually sat in the deaf section, and he came to faith in Christ and, uh, and started working for Young Life, and 50 years later, still working for Young Life um, because of that event. So I hope you see the movie. It's a good testimony, really, of Greg Laurie's life. Um, but uh, anyway, it's great. You know, when our kids were young, um, one of the favorite books around our house was the Guinness Book of World Records. Um, and it, it, it maintained, it continued to be on their, on their wish list because they come up with an updated book every year. So we th- I think we have 25 copies at home or something like that. We have a lot, not that many, but anyway. Um, how much did the heaviest man ever weigh? 1,400 pounds. That's a big boy. Uh, he died at the age of 41. Uh, the tallest man in modern times. Eight foot, 11 and a half inches. He wore a size 37 double A shoe. Uh, he died at the age of 22. The, the world record for bearing children um, I had a hard time believing this, but how can you argue with Guinness, right? Well, it was a Russian couple that holds the record for the most children. Uh, this woman, same couple, gave, she gave birth to 16 pair, pairs of twins, seven sets of triplets, and four sets of quadruplets. It sounds like a cat or something. It's like, oh, my birth. So a total of 27 births for 69 children. I'm just the messenger. Don't persecute me. So. Um, one of my favorite pieces of, of trivia from the Guinness Book of World Records is the uh, first car accident in 1895 was in Ohio. There were two cars, and they found each other and crashed. I always thought that was Kansas, but it was Ohio. Um, But there is an error in the book uh, that I want to point out, especially this morning, and that is the oldest mother on record. They say that the oldest mother on record to give birth naturally was 59 years old, but that's wrong. And we're going to look at it in our passage today because our passage talks about the authentic record of the oldest woman, definitely more reliable than the Guinness Book of World Records, as well as the eternal significance of that birth. So back in Romans 3, verse 28, Paul gives a great argument for justification by faith. And he says, for we maintain, verse 28, that a person is justified by faith apart from observing the law. The way Martin Luther translated that verse uh, is that it was by faith alone, uh, not by observing the law. So, we are made right with God by faith and doesn't have anything to do with our works. 
only by faith. Uh, in, the, in the beginning of chapter four, Paul continues the argument that justification comes through faith alone and gives, continues with the example of Abraham. And uh, <clears throat> among other things, we saw last week uh, that he quoted John 15, 6, or Genesis 15, 6. And this is where really the argument comes from. And that is that Abraham believed the Lord and God credited it to him as righteousness. So it comes back from Genesis. So the timeline of Abraham's righteousness by faith came around 14 years before he was circumcised. And so Paul's conclusion is that people are made right with God through faith apart from the works of the law, and that right standing with God is equally available to the Jews and the non-Jews. Technically, Abraham was a non-Jew. He wasn't circumcised when he was justified by faith alone, and then later was circumcised. So starting in verse 17 uh, to the end of Romans chapter 4 is where we're going to be today, and Paul explains the nature of of true faith. That's what we're looking at today. It's as if God gives Paul a a supernatural insight into Abraham's thinking so that we could better understand the nature of faith. So let's read our passage. Follow along in your Bibles as I read Romans 4, beginning at verse 17. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. Speaking to Abraham, he is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief, verse 20, regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness, The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness for us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins, and he was raised to life for our justification. This is God's word. So the first thing we see in these verses, number one on your outline, is that the object of Abraham's faith was God alone. So it's pretty obvious. Again, verse 17, uh, he's talking about he is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed. So this is the God he continues who gives life to the dead and calls things into being that were not. And Abraham's faith was clearly centered on this God. So we said last week, and I think it's important for us to say it again, that it's the object of our faith that's most important. It's not the faith itself. Your faith can be greater than anyone else's you know, but it will be of absolutely no benefit to you if the object is wrong. 
as a young child, I used to go skating on a pond near me, uh, near our, our family home. Uh, and there was a kid who had a lot of faith that the ice would hold him one time, and he fell through the ice, and he died, drowned, in faith. He drowned believing that the ice would hold him. So the object of his faith, he might have had, he obviously had great faith to get on the ice. But his faith was, was put in the wrong object. And so it led to his death. I, I drive a, a 2001 Honda uh, Accord that my, was my dad's. Uh, when he passed away, he, uh, that was one of the things that I took from, from, our, uh, from, from his house, was the car. And uh, <clears throat> it's pretty reliable. Uh, and we keep, it up, keep up on the maintenance of it. And, but if somebody would, and there would be no reason for someone to do this, but if somebody were to take the hubcaps off and remove the, the bolts, the, the lug nuts, and then replace the hubcaps so it looked okay, and I got in the car having, I could have a ton of faith in the car that it would take me from point A to point B, but I wouldn't get very far because the wheels would fall off. So it doesn't matter what my, what my faith is, the object of the faith has been tampered with, I'd be in trouble. On the other hand, <clears throat> if I have a little faith in the car, which... I kind of do. Um, I, I drive it with some trepidation, uh, but if no one is fooled with it, uh, it should be safe. Despite the fact that my, the object of my faith is at least relatively strong. So we saw last week that Abraham was a weak human being. He was like us in many ways. He had a lot of flaws. But his faith was strong, not because his faith was so amazing, but because God that he had his faith in was so amazing. We all have faith. The big issue is what do we put our faith in or in whom do we put our faith? And so verse 17, we says that we can see Abraham understood two very significant things about God. And this is a, these are on the outline. He understood that God gives life to the dead. Now knowing that, Remember, after God had Isaac, this promised son, you remember what God asked him to do? God asked him to sacrifice Isaac. And that he was going to be obedient to God no matter what God asked him to do. God had given him this son. If God says sacrifice this son, he's going to do that. But there's this amazing verse in Genesis 22. And Abraham knew that God was going to provide, but in Genesis 22, it, Abraham says to his servant, stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will travel a little further, farther. We will worship there, and then we, plural, will come back. And so Abraham knew that if Isaac died, and that's what he was anticipating, God could resurrect him. He, could, he knew that that out of a dead womb had come Isaac, and he knew that Isaac could be raised again from the dead. That's the God that Abraham believed in, so he didn't hesitate to believe God. Knowing that if God asked him to do this and was planning on, that both of them would somehow come back to the donkey and continue their journey. And then the second thing that Abraham understood that's not on the outline, but right underneath that first point, you can, you can write, God creates from nothing. Because that's what God does. God creates from nothing. Maybe that's what Paul was thinking of as God's restoration of Abraham and, and Sarah to be able to have children. 
For all intents and purposes, God created Isaac from nothing. And so even from this first verse, we see that Abraham understood about God and how he saw God as the object of his faith in a way that dominated his life. So let me ask you this. Is is this great God, does he dominate your life by your faith in this God? Are you following him? Not just on Sundays, but in in between Sundays when you're at work. In the midst of your, are you doing your work for the glory of God? When you're tempted to do something wrong or bad at work, are, are you brought back because of your faith in who this amazing God is? That's what Abraham did. That's what changed his life, was not his faith, but his, his small faith, as Jesus said, as little as a mustard seed, but in a big God. Dr. Richard Wilson was a professor at Princeton Theological Seminary when Princeton was uh, a more conservative school than it is now. And one of his students came back to preach in chapel, and Dr. Wilson used to make it a habit of always going to hear his students preach. And after the sermon, the professor goes up to his former student, and he says, uh, he said this, I always want to come and hear my students preach at least one time. And what I'm listening for is not how well their sermon is constructed, but whether they believe in a little God or a big God. He explained it like this. Some people have a little God, and they're always in trouble with him. He's unable to answer prayer. He can't take care of the inspiration and transmission of the scripture to us. He doesn't intervene on behalf of, of his people. They have a little God. And then there are former students who have a great God. He speaks and it's done. He commands and it stands fast. He knows how to show himself strong on behalf of them that fear him. And then he said to this young former student who is preaching, you son, have a great God. And I'm confident that he will use you and bless your ministry. And then he shook his hand, smiled, and walked out of the chapel. Do you believe in a great God? A big God? Or do you believe in a little God? Do you believe and take God at his word and what he says is true? Do you live your life? Do you stake your life on that? Do you believe that, like Abraham, that God can breathe life into something that's dead? What's dead in your life? Maybe it's a a relationship that you feel is dead. Do you feel like God can revive that dead relationship? He can. Maybe it's your health, maybe it's your finances, maybe it's some other issue that you're dealing with that you look at as just being overwhelming. Do you believe in a great God? If our view of God is as high as Abraham's was, if we see God as so amazing and so enormous that he creates something out of nothing and gives life to the dead, 
then you believe in a big God. And it should make the kind of difference in your life that it made in the life of Abraham. And so we should express our reverence to God by asking him to do what otherwise would be impossible to be done. Because our God is a big God. He can help us see the the bigger picture. When we pray for wisdom, what we're praying for is, Lord, help me to see life from your perspective. And what does James say if we pray for wisdom? That God will not hold back. He'll give it liberally to us. Because he wants us to see our lives from his perspective. That's wisdom. We serve a God who it says in Isaiah 59, says, listen, the Lord's arm is not too short to save, nor is his ear too deaf to hear you call. That's the God we serve. Faith. Faith is our response to the promises of God in the word of God. And that's why it says in Romans 10, 17, now faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And you know the way Martin Luther translated that verse is he said, now faith comes by hearing and hearing by a message preached about a sermon preached about Jesus. He is the word, right? In the beginning of John, Jesus is the word of God. The word became flesh. And so it's a message about Jesus. That's what Luther said. You'll never have faith if you don't get into God's word. You've got to get the promises of God in order to have faith. Abraham heard God speak to him. That's how he got God's word. He didn't have it written down like we do. And the Bible is so full of promises. It's chock full of promises. Speaking of trivia, somebody went through and counted the 8,810 promises of God in Scripture. How many of them are you claiming? How many of them are you praying for yourself and praying for other people? You know, sometimes as we pray, we wonder, man, am I really praying the right thing for this person? Well, let me tell you something. When you pray the word of God for someone, you are praying the right thing for that person. You are praying God's will for that person if you're praying God's word for that person. Everybody who knows, uh, you know, we've all heard of Billy Graham. But we don't sometimes remember that D.L. Moody was the Billy Graham of his day. And listen to what D.L. Moody wrote. He wrote something very interesting. He said this. He said, I used to close my Bible and pray for faith. God, give me faith. God, give me faith. God, give me faith, please. And he said, my faith never would grow. And then he said, I came to this verse in Romans 10, 17. It says, now faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And I stopped praying for faith, Moody says. And I started reading my Bible and faith just burst a flame in my heart. You see, faith is a gift of God. You've got to get into the word of God. And by the way, he writes, when we bring people to faith in Jesus Christ, if you want them to believe, you've got to give them something to believe. Give them the word of God. Give them the word of God. Give them the word of God. He says it three times. So you want your faith to grow? You know how to make it grow. Get into the word of God. Study it. Memorize it. That, for me, has been the most helpful thing that has grown my faith. I can tell you, hands down, no issue. It is memorizing God's word. That will help your faith grow, I promise. As you memorize it and meditate on God's word, your faith will grow. 
So do you have strong faith? You know how to make it happen. The second thing we see in this passage is that faith will have obstacles. It's number two. Starting at verse 18, against all hope, Abraham and hope believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God. So the obvious obstacle here, it's on your outline, was believing that God would give him a child. Uh, That was a pretty big obstacle for someone in their 90s, a a couple. Um, Given Sarah's age and Abraham's age, it was biologically impossible as far as they were concerned. And then the less obvious difficulty, the next thing on your outline, is the overwhelming nature of the promise. The overwhelming nature of the promise. In other words, the promise was so incredibly impressive, it it was like it was too good to be true. It was too good to be true. The idea that his offspring would be as plentiful as the stars, as plentiful as the sand on the sea, what? And bring blessing to the entire world and bring right standing with God, ultimately through Jesus, And and the first part of verse 20 touches on on this when it says, he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God. Can you imagine celebrating their birthdays from 85 and five years later, they're 90 and five years later, 95 and then 99, four years after that. And can you imagine all the candles in their baklava or whatever they put their candles into? That's a lot of candles. But they continued to believe in God's promise of a son, which is finally fulfilled that following year. And throughout this remarkable journey, Abraham did not falter in his faith. The real obstacle was that Abraham was unable to father a child, and Sarah's unable to conceive, and, and I mean, they're, they're old. But when God renewed their covenant with circumcision, he reaffirms their promise of a coming son. And here's what God said to Abraham in Genesis 17, verse 1. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am El Shaddai, God Almighty. And El Shaddai is Hebrew for the God who is more than enough. So let me ask you, is God more than than enough for you? Is is God more than enough for you? Wherever you're at in your life, is, is he who you are relying on? He is the God of bounty. He is the God of reproduction. He is the God who brings something out of nothing. You know, we use the word create pretty lightly. We say, well, that's a beautiful masterpiece he created, and we do. That's the way we use it. But if you really think about the meaning of it, we don't create anything. It's only God who creates. Because to create is to bring something out of nothing. That's what God does. And some think wrongly that having faith just means to ignore the facts. That's not faith. We don't ignore the facts. We deal with the facts. We, we look at them. They think faith and facts are incompatible. 
It's not true. The faith without reason is called fideism. You have those on your outline just so you can know them. And reason without faith is rationalism. So Abraham did not take an irrational leap of faith. Faith cannot be reduced to reason. And reason is not faith. I have a book of theology in my library, and it's titled, Our Reasonable Faith. That's what our faith is. Our faith is a reasonable faith. It's based on the truth of God, the objective truth of God's word. What led Abraham to demonstrate his faith? Think about this now. He compared the human impossibility of of, of fathering a child with the divine impossibility of God going against his word because God is faithful. And Abraham concluded that if God is truly omnipotent, all-powerful, and he is, then nothing is beyond his power. Nothing is beyond his power. You know, it must have been quite the scene when Abraham broke this news to Sarah. You know, remember, this is a discussion between the most senior citizens in the senior citizen living place. And so Sarah says to Abraham, where have you been? And Abraham says, I've been out having a prayer time. Sarah says, well, how did it go? Well, I went great. Why? Well, you 90-year-old beauty, (laughs) you're going to have a baby. How would you respond to that if you were a female and 90 years old? What? (laughs) And Abraham believed. He believed in the God who gives life to the dead, back to verse 17, and calls things that are not as though they were. There it is. Charles Wesley, the great hymn writer, the brother of John Wesley, wrote it like this. In hope against all human hope, self-desperate, I believe. Faith, mighty faith, the promise sees and looks to that alone and laughs at impossibilities, and cries, it shall be done. That's the God we believe in. And so, if we truly believe in God's power, and who he claims to be, then none of his promises will go unfulfilled. None of them. No matter what our circumstances, God's power is is in control. It's, It's... Your circumstances are not beyond God's power. Here's the problem. We have doubts in the back of our minds that go against what we believe about God being in control. We say we trust God, but then who do we end up relying on? Do we rely on God? Maybe we do. I hope we do. We're human, though. We struggle with this. And so oftentimes we end up relying on ourselves. We have the attitude, if anything's going to get done, I'm going to have to do it. And how do we really internalize and own what we already know about God? 
Is there any kind of indicator of how deeply we've genuinely embraced who God really is? Well, I'll give you one example. How long is your worry list? I hope that you turn that worry list into your prayer list and pray about the things that you're worried about. Pray about the things you're concerned about. Pray about the things that are on your heart. Give those to God. And know that, that no matter what happens, when you look at the obstacles, that the things you're worried about in your life are not things that are in the way of God's plan. They're part of God's plan. God wants to use them in your life to make you like his son Jesus. You know, one of my favorite Old Testament accounts is the, accounts, the account of the Israelites when they're leaving Egypt. And, they go, and they're up against the Red Sea and they see the Egyptian army after them. And from their perspective, there's no way out. Either they will drown or they will be killed by these soldiers. And what does God do? God shows up and he does a miracle and he parts the Red Sea. And it says they walk across on dry ground. And what this account does for us, and this is on your outline, is that it gives us some valuable lessons on how we approach the challenges and the obstacles we have in our lives, no matter what those are. So first of all, again, on your outline, accept that obstacles are part of life. James 1, James says it like this. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. And so we know that when, when we are faced with an obstacle, God wants to use it in your life. There's a pastor, his name is Lloyd Ogilvie. And he was a pastor in Southern California. And uh, he describes undergoing what he said was the worst year of his life. His wife had had five surgeries. She had cancer, so then it was chemotherapy and radiation. Then he, is a, he was a senior pastor, and several members of his staff left uh, different circumstances. And it just seemed like everywhere around him was a huge problem, something that he just couldn't overcome. And he said, I felt like discouragement mugged my feelings. But then he wrote this. The greatest discovery that I have made in the midst of all the difficulties is that I can have joy when I don't at all feel like it. When I had every reason to feel beaten, I felt joy. In spite of everything, God gave me the conviction of being loved and the certainty that nothing could separate me from him. And it was not happiness or gush or jolliness, but a constant flow of God's Holy Spirit through me. At no time did God give me the easy confidence that everything would work out as I wanted on my timetable, he wrote. But that he was in charge and would give me and my family enough courage for each day. By his grace, 
And joy is always the result of that. That's what he wrote. God will refine you through difficulty. He will refine you through the hard things that you think you're not going to make it through. God says, I will give you the strength to get through that hard time. And then another way to approach obstacles, you've got it uh, on your outline, in our lives is to faithfully follow God's commands. We're obedient to what we know to be the truth. So obstacles happen. And it's impossible, we're human, for us not to react to the obstacles that we have. But instead of reacting in a frantic fear, how about trying by God's strength, by his grace, a calm obedience. And just say, Lord, what do I need to obey? What what can I do to follow you? I want to trust you. And we ask God to bring to mind scripture that can encourage us. That's why we memorize God's word. And he'll bring it to our minds, and we can pray that for ourselves. Maybe we begin with John chapter 15, that, that apart from him we can do nothing. And so we rely on him. We need to stay attached to the vine he talks about in John chapter 15. We stay connected to him. We abide in him. And then also to approach obstacles in our lives from thinking about the parting of the Red Sea is to wait for God to intervene. It's on your outline. Wait for God to intervene. In other words, trust God for what only God can do. He'll do it, but that's, what, that's who our God is. He does the impossible. So let me ask you this. Who is the CEO of your life? And it's a constant battle because we constantly want to be the CEO of our own lives. We want to be in control. And God says, no, you let me be in control. We need to let Jesus be the CEO of our lives, the, the center of our lives, the one we rely on. The one we go to and, 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 and through his word and say, Lord, how can we be obedient to you? And that leads us to number three on the outline. What should be the goals of our faith? What should be the goals of our faith? And from this passage, we can ask what, what Abraham's goals were. And he had two. And the first one, also on your outline, was to glorify God. Look at the last line of verse 20. But was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God. Well, you can underline that, glory to God in your Bible. You know, God is never glorified. This is the next, actually the next thing on your outline. God is never glorified in a believer's life apart from faith. It's by faith that we, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, whether you eat or drink, do all for the glory of God. So how, how do we bring glory to God as we eat and drink? We do it by faith. We do it with a grateful heart. We do it relying on God. Faith is, you've got it on the outline, full reliance on God. Hebrews 11, verse 11 is where in this great hall of faith, this great chapter of faith, it talks about Abraham. And it says this in Hebrews 11, verse 11. It was faith that made Abraham able to become a father, even though he was too old and Sarah herself could not have children. And what does it say next? He trusted God 
to keep his promise. And so back to Romans 4, the next verse, verse 21, gives us one of the best definitions of faith in the Bible. And it describes right here, Abraham as, and here it is, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. That's faith. That's faith. Underline that in your Bibles, and you can write the word faith out in the margin, because there it is, being fully persuaded that God has power to do what he's promised. And so our challenge is to glorify God in the same way. Take him at his word, just what Abraham did. And then Abraham's next goal is you've got a, a blank there, is righteousness. His goal was to live a righteous life. Verse 22 concludes with a description of Abraham's faith by saying it was credited to him as righteousness. So it's not our righteousness. It's Christ in us. That's what Paul says in Philippians 1. For me to live is Christ. That's, it's, that's life. To die is gain. Why? Why is it gain? Because it's more Christ. I'm in heaven. I'm in his presence. And so just to review here for a second, the faith that leads to right standing in God's eyes, to righteousness, acknowledges his incredible power to create, to revive the dead. It doesn't ignore the obstacles, but, but measures the obstacles against the word of God and against the power of God in your life. And ultimately, that faith gives us complete confidence that God will fulfill his promise and that he, in verse 21, and that he's credited us with his righteousness, verse 22. And so the only way to be found righteous before God is by faith. And then I, I love verses 22 and, 23 to 25. These last verses are awesome because it wasn't just written for Abraham. It was written for us, and it's right there in the text. Look at it. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness, verse 22. Verse 23, it, the words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness for us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. So do you know what the greatest way is to bring glory to God? It's through faith. It doesn't have to be, I mean, we have our missionaries who, who go overseas. Wow, we pray for them, we partner with them. God calls some to go overseas and he calls some to, to stay here. But that's not the greatest way to have faith, is to go overseas to be a missionary. It's not the greatest to, to give some big financial gift to God. That's not the greatest way to have faith or to serve him. There are a million ways we can serve God. And hopefully in all of those things, they're filled with faith. But it's having faith that brings the most glory to God. That's how we do it. <clears throat> just like Abraham did. Abraham dove headfirst into God's promises and came up believing that God would make good on what he'd said. That's what we need to do. To not believe what God says is to essentially call him a liar. Really, every time we sin, we're calling God a liar. We can't just, and this is on your outline, we can't just talk about having faith in a good and powerful God, we need to demonstrate it, our trust in him. 
James talks about this, right? You can't just have faith. If you have faith, you will have actions that, are, that will follow it. <clears throat> Do the actions save us? No, not in and of themselves. But if we have genuine faith, we will have actions that follow it. So you think, well, James, if you're reading through James, you might ask the question, <clears throat> which is most important, faith or works? Well, let me ask you this. Which wing of an airplane is most important, the left wing or the right wing? Here's your answer. Our works should, will, will be there if we have faith. Though we believe that God can bring <clears throat> life out of death and create something out of nothing, then we can trust that God will save us and transform us to be like his son. So now we've seen in Romans 4 that Abraham is not just the father of the Hebrew people, but all of us who receive the grace of God by faith. And he's declared us to be in right standing with him, not on any merit of our own, but because we have faith in him, the object of our faith. The only difference between Abraham and us is what we're called to believe in. So Abraham, for Abraham, he was called to believe in the command of God, God speaking to him and for him to be obedient to that. He was obedient to take Isaac to sacrifice him, knowing that God can bring life out of death, that God would provide. And ultimately, what does Isaac's, the Isaac's sacrifice communicate to us? It communicates the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus for our sins. So Isaac points us to Jesus. We are called to believe the sacrifice of Jesus in the gospel, in the word of God. And to know the word of God, you have to have it, the, the word of God. And, and that leads us to the gospel, which is the, what, what we celebrated this morning at the communion table. And you've got it on your outline at the bottom. The essence of the gospel is this. And this is just a quotation from 1 Corinthians 15. That the Messiah died for our sins exactly as the scripture tells it, that he was buried, that he was raised from death on the third day, again, exactly as the scripture says, that he presented himself alive to Peter, then to his closest followers, and later to more than 500 of his followers, all at the same time. So one of my favorite commentators, and I'll close with this, was Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he says basically the same thing that D.L. Moody said. He says this, this is his summary of Romans 4 which we've now concluded. And he says this, if you want to have strong faith, read your Bible. Go through it from beginning to end. Concentrate on the revelation that God has given of himself and his character. Abraham knew God. He gave glory to God and relied utterly on him and his word. That, writes Martin Lloyd-Jones, is the secret of faith. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, how we thank you for this example of Abraham and his faith. May our eyes be fixed on you as his were. Thank you that we can trust completely in you because you always keep your promises. We are so deeply in need of your grace and your righteousness. Please help us now to grow in grace, to grow in the knowledge of who you are. And Lord, if there's anyone here who has never put their faith alone in Christ alone, 
for their salvation, that they would respond in faith right now because they're here because you're drawing them to yourself. So speak to hearts, Father, I pray. In the strong name of Jesus, amen. Um, Well, this is from the end of Romans, what Paul wrote. He said, now to him who is able to strengthen you in the faith, to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ, the anointed one. Amen. So be it.